thank you and gift to us. Uh, a couple of people here I want to introduce to you that I didn't warn about this, but uh, Brad and Aaron Cheney are here. Stand up and we can see your face a second. Um, thanks. Uh, Brad and Aaron have moved their family from Idaho recently to South Scottsdale where they're planning a new church. And with the Presbyterian, we're involved with them in that. Um, I want you to know about them for a couple of reasons. Once you can pray for them, our church is contributing to that church plant and uh, hoping that it will go great. Um, if you know people in the South Scottsdale area that would be worth them meeting and talking to, people maybe who are looking for a church or who just know the area and could give them the lay of the land, uh, having good contacts early in a church plant is invaluable. So um, speak to them and greet them afterwards if you can. And then Roman Gonzalez is here from Philadelphia. And uh, we've met him recently, and he is a graduate of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and exploring ministry opportunities uh, here and helping us where we don't know much at all. So really glad that you're, you're here. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you want to turn there in a Bible or it's the same text as printed in your bulletin, we're doing a Christmas series on why Jesus came. There are uh, several sort of short, uh, succinct statements in the Scripture about why Jesus came to earth. Uh, last week, we said uh, we talked about Jesus coming to destroy the works of the devil, uh, which is in uh, 1 John 3. Uh, a couple of others coming up. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Um, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, and Jesus came that we might have life in its fullest. And so we're going to look at those. But today, in 1 Timothy, the statement is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as Paul says, among whom I am the worst, or I am the chief. So I don't know how comfortable you are with the language of sin and sinners. Um, sometimes... Sinner is used to describe like foibles. Sometimes it's used to describe the worst of the worst people. Um, and the Bible uses it kind of for the whole gamut of us with, uh, with the term. But generally, when people hear that Jesus came to save sinners, the response is something like this. Well, you know, good for them. <laughs> I'm glad that Jesus is willing to do that. I'm proud of him for being willing to do that. And I'm sure it's very meaningful to people who... You know, have sort of wrecked their lives and need that kind of help. Um, it's harder to say, oh good, that's the help I need. Right? It's not immediately the way we think about ourselves. Uh, in church, a lot of times when people uh, hear the word sinner or admissions like in our confessions of sin that we're sinners, um, they kind of take it as a prod toward modesty. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to not sound self-righteous, when I can, so I should, you know, admit that I'm, I'm a sinner, but like, you and I both know I'm not like a bad person, right? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's sort of like when a preacher talks about sin, and he gives an example from his own life, like, well, even this week, I found myself driving five miles over the speed limit before I had slowed down. You know, you're like, man, you're not convinced, you know? And uh, so, but it's very hard for us, because we live lives of constant defensiveness and self-justification, to sit down with the idea that we have something broken in us that really isn't fixable morally. And this seems to be um, what the Scripture says about us. And so when we're told that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
Paul, who writes that, means himself as the worst, but he also means me and he means you. I don't know if you saw the quote at the front of the bulletin from Solzhenitsyn. He said, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We're going to appreciate why Jesus came uh, to receive the good news of Christmas, then we also have to sit down with the bad news of who we are and why we needed a Savior like Jesus to come for us. So that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that you would give us uh, honest and courageous minds and hearts as we listen to your Word. Um, Let us uh, be open enough to you to believe the things you say about us, even when they're not the things that we tell ourselves. Um, But we... No, we need your Son, Jesus Christ, and we ask that you let us feel that deeply tonight, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Timothy 1, beginning of verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. So, I used uh, an example of Sleeping Beauty last week, um, because I'm a sentimental man, despite what anybody says. Um, Sleeping Beauty is an example of Jesus coming to our rescue, like Prince Philip came to the rescue of Princess Aurora. Uh, I'm more comfortable this week, even though it's another Disney example, with uh, using Maleficent. As the example. You know, it's the story of Sleeping Beauty told from the antagonist's perspective. Uh, Maleficent is the evil witch that cursed Princess Aurora. And she does that in, in this version as well, but she's a little more sympathetic as a character because you sort of get her backstory about, you know, what made her so mad. Like, why is she so angry at Princess Aurora? It was that Stefan, her true love, had abandoned her for political gain and um, had betrayed her. And she was so cross about this that when Stefan had a child, Aurora, that at the occasion of the christening, which she was not invited, uh, she placed a curse on the baby to get revenge. It was the curse that uh, on her 16th birthday, she'll be pricked by the needle of a spinning wheel and fall into a deep sleep like death. Right? So this is... The story, though, given with a more sympathetic spin for Maleficent, because she actually gets to know Aurora in this story in these years when she's growing up, and she kind of likes her. And she starts to feel regret about this curse, and wishes she could undo the curse, but she can't undo it. She's helpless to undo it. Uh, She comes up with the idea of the antidote, which is the kiss of true love would wake uh, Aurora from her sleep, But in this version, she gets Prince Philip to come at her behest and kiss Princess Aurora, but it doesn't work. And so she's stuck. Uh, And when she talks about what she's done to Princess Aurora, she says, what I've done to you is unforgivable. It's unforgivable. 
This is a Disney movie, and so she is able, through true love, to reverse the spell herself from her love of Aurora. Um, Hannah Rose, a blogger who said that the story of Maleficent is a lot like the story of Saul, who became St. Paul, who wrote our text today, um, in that it was meeting the person that they were persecuting that enabled them to see the depth of their evil towards that person. For Maleficent, it's Princess Aurora that she came to love. Uh, for Saul of Tarsus, he met Jesus Christ. And when he saw him face to face, he realized the extent of the evil in his life, what he was doing, persecuting Jesus and his church. So, um, Paul's story, though, wasn't one about, now that I see this, I'll just embrace true love and make everything better. Uh, Paul's story was more of a Humpty Dumpty story. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to put together what I've ruined basically a jihadist who has been persecuting people for religious reasons for the wrong God. And when he realizes this, he realizes that he is broken in a way that can't be fixed. He's sinned in ways that can't be made up for in some other way. Um, he has chains on him that he can't break. And that causes him to look to Jesus Christ for mercy. And says that's the key thing to understand about him and his whole life is that I am the foremost of the sinners that Jesus came to rescue. And so I want us to think about this, what it means for us, the way we think about ourselves, and then also the way we think about our interactions with other people uh, around uh, who Jesus Christ is as we think about this statement about why Jesus came. And the first part of this is that Jesus intervenes to rescue people like us. He intervenes for us. It says in verse 15, trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is, He came not for good people, but for bad people. Right? Jesus came for bad people, not for good people. People who are hopelessly and helplessly broken morally and spiritually. Uh, I never hear anyone but a Christian describe herself or himself that way, that I'm helplessly, hopelessly morally and spiritually broken. Uh, but that sounds normal after a while when you're a Christian because you realize this is who we are and this is why Jesus came for us. Um, it also makes us optimistic for people because it means nobody's beyond the pale. You know, nobody's unredeemable. Nobody's unforgivable. You kind of live your life with these glasses that say, look, if there's hope for me, there's hope for absolutely anybody. And... Um, so it's a shaping way of thinking about the world. But most people think about their moral failures differently. They think, I'm only human, I make some mistakes, uh, but I'm not broken in some fundamental, unchangeable way. Right? Um, it's more, a little bit more of a Santa Claus, naughty versus nice morality. You know, I'm, I know that I am sometimes naughty, but it's just naughty. It's not like mean. It's not bad. You know, nobody actually gets cold at Christmas in their stocking. There's a naughty list, but yeah, it's mostly just a behavioral incentive for kids during December, right? <laughs> nobody really thinks, you know, I'm a bad person. And um, that's common, a normal way to think. But Jesus comes with a very different approach to us. It's a very different message. He comes at us more like someone uh, hosting an intervention, now, this is usually done for uh, addicts, their friends and family. 
coming to their wit's end about hoping for their loved one who's an addict to change will stage an intervention. You've seen this on TV if you haven't had to live through one. Uh, um, and it's just about the worst thing ever. Like, if you're the object of an intervention, I mean, you walk into a room and there everybody is, and they're there because they've been talking about you. It hasn't been good. Um, they are being super intrusive. It's tremendously humiliating. And your mind surely is set on fire with defensive and self-justifying thoughts. You know, how dare you say this to me? I know you're not perfect and, you know, this none of your business. And whatever else you could think of to say, get me out of this awful situation where somebody's confronting me with uh, failures of morality, failures of love, um, and how I've ruined my own life. And nobody's instant response to that is, thank you so much, I've been looking for this help. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, you know, this is the worst thing ever. And that's really what we're being asked to endure from Jesus. Like when we come face to face with Jesus, it has every feeling of that intervention. All of our defensive and self-justifying talk is being squashed. Uh, the indictment against us being read in a way we can't defend ourselves from, but we hate to hear. And uh, this is why there's bad news in Christianity, right? There's good news, but the good news isn't much, it doesn't have much effect if you don't embrace the bad news and why you need the good news. And that's what Jesus does for us here. And he just tells us, you've got debts that you can't pay, and you've got chains that you can't lose. Um, but I can't. I can't. And part of what's awful about an intervention is people are insisting that you change when you've been trying to change forever and you can't. And so now they're just piling on with the guilt, but you have the same hopelessness about ever changing anyway. And so that doubles it down. But with Jesus, he presses our sins on us, but says, I'm the one who can pay the debt you owe. I'm the one who can loosen the chains that bind you. And um, I'm willing to do that because I love you. And that's pretty different. That makes it a lot better. Um, Jesus forgives unforgivable people. He longs to be gracious to you. He delights to show you mercy, he says. And uh, nobody wants to need mercy. Nobody wants to be a charity case. But once you realize you are one, Jesus gets really beautiful really fast. Right? So that's why it's a mercy religion. He says in verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason. And then talks about how God uses him in his life. I receive mercy for this reason. It's a mercy religion. Jesus did not come to congratulate the good people and to uh, scold the baddies. You know, he came for us to show mercy to us and to tell the people who think they're the goodies that your constant soundtrack of envy and judgmental attitudes and self-righteousness is just as offensive as the licentious and violent sins of the people you despise. Well, this is uh, a lot of what got him killed, is that he wouldn't congratulate the people who thought that they were good. But if you read the Bible, it's not that surprising that it's a mercy religion, because who's good in the Bible? Yeah, nobody ever shows up very well in the Bible. You know, Think about... The heroes of our faith, like Jacob, the liar, 
and David, the adulterer and murderer, and Rahab, the prostitute, and name anybody else, and you get the same kind of issues in the Bible. Someone's talking, I've been, to, you know, I've been a Christian man for a long time with children, so people are always trying to tell me how to be a Christian father. And someone asked me the other day, I said, so like, name a good Christian father in the Bible. Like, you got one? Because I, I don't. Like, there's not a good Christian father in the Bible as far as we can know. You know, most of them are lousy. And so, why is that? Is it because they weren't trying hard enough for getting it right? Or was it because they're examples of mercy in a mercy religion rather than uh, heroes of morality in a moralistic religion? It's a mercy religion. And that's what we depend on. And Paul when he looks at himself, the one who's telling us how to believe and behave, you know, he sees, I'm, I'm the worst. I'm the foremost of the sinners. And he's not, he's not being modest when he says that. He's being honest when he says that. He's the worst. And that's what Christians say. Because it's true. So, I don't know if you feel cynical about changing or if you feel like you're a decent person that just needs a couple of tweaks to be great. Um, the message from Jesus isn't straighten up, fly right, and do better. Uh, the reason Jesus came was to rescue people who couldn't rescue themselves. Uh, he came to save sinners like us. The uh, other thing Paul says, though, kind of flowing out of that, is that we're the kind of people Jesus uses in his mission in the world. He uses lost causes who've been redeemed to represent him to other people in the world which is also counterintuitive. You think you'd find the best Christians, the shiniest Christians, the one with the least obvious you know, moral blunders, and you'd set them out you know, to be the spokespeople, but that's not really how this works. He says in verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. That is, I got my job as a trophy of God's grace. Not so people would look at me and say, look at my marvelous Christian life that's based on my great devotional life and prayers uh, and my deep spirituality. You know, if you want to be like me, why, you should try Jesus too. You know, that's not his pitch. His pitch is, if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. When you despair about yourself and your life with God, look at me. And if you think he can forgive me, then that should give you hope for you. Which is a funny pitch, isn't it? It's not usually what we think. You know, when you're having your big banquet at, at, at church and you're trying to bring your non-Christian friends to pitch them, you don't put the losers up there, you put the winners up there. Right? Uh, because we don't believe this. This is crazy. That your failures would be the thing that credential you to be a minister in Jesus' name. Right? That... Your brokenness is the thing uh, that enables you to be a qualified spokesperson for Jesus in other people's lives. Not at all what we would expect. Poor Timothy. He went to this church. Paul's writing this letter to Timothy to tell him how to be a minister. Um, the first pastor of this church was who? You know, The Apostle Paul. <laughs> so Timothy needed a letter before 1 Timothy that said, Don't follow Paul. There's no way that's going to go well. <laughs> like you're following, you know, the greatest minister of the church. You're, they're not going to be content with you as their pastor. 
And uh, and I don't know who came forth there, but you know who their third minister was? John. Saint John. The Revelator. <laughs> Brought his, uh, his um, Jesus' mother with him because he was taking care of her. So John took Mary with him to live in Ephesus. So I don't know who the fourth minister was, um, but I bet his luck wasn't good. <laughs> but poor Timothy's probably thinking, wow, I, you know, those are big shoes to fill. The Apostle Paul, right? I've gotta, I better be on it when I go into that church. Right? I better never make a mistake. They better never see me misstep or misspeak, and my sermons had better be killing it. Um, because their expectations are high. And Paul's saying to him, what I want you to pay attention to as you try to be a minister in this church is that it's your sins and your failures that qualify you to speak about the grace of God. Uh, Because winning does not fit you to talk about the grace of God. Losing does. And uh, that's kind of a shame if you ask me, but it's the truth. It's the truth. It also means, though, that He can use you because if your conscience works anything like mine, you think this, I'm too broken, I've been too bad a Christian for too long, and I'm too ashamed to say anything at all about the faith to anyone else. I mean, the best thing I could do for Jesus' mission in the world is to hide, right? So I don't make Him look worse. And that feels reasonable. But what Jesus says is, I want to... I want to make you a trophy of my grace. I want all the people who know you're a screw-up to see how loved you are, see how forgiven you are, and see how even you can be changed. That's what I want to show them, and that's why I'm using you. That means uh, the only thing that disqualifies you from speaking about the mercy of Jesus in other people's lives is self-righteousness. If you think you're awesome. If you expect to go out in the world and, and have people say to you, Wow, there's just something so different about you. You've got this light in your eyes and you seem so spiritual. What do you have that I don't have? Well, that's not how it works. Because our testimony isn't, look how great I am, and I'd like to thank Jesus for making me this way. It's, I'm an object of His mercy. I'm not denying that Jesus said people will see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Uh, but what God gets glory for in our lives is the depth of His grace that He's willing to love and have mercy on people like us. And that's the juice in serving for Jesus' sake. Do you know the story of a Ken and Floyd Smith? Some of you may know because uh, Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book about them uh, and her, their influence on in her life. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was an English and Women's Studies professor, I think in Syracuse, New York. And she was, in her words, on her way to becoming a tendered radical. Uh, her heroes were the four horsemen of 19th century atheism, you know, Freud, Marx, Darwin, and uh, Hegel. <laughs> Not a big fan of the Christian right, you'd say. Um, you know, felt like they were pretty mobbed up with patriarchy, as it could be argued. And um, felt like most of what she heard from Christians of that stripe were uh, yelled condemnations. The people were uh, blowing her up all the time for all that she's doing wrong. And uh, 
So she did what any good uh, English and Women's Studies uh, professor would do. She wrote an incendiary article sending up the Promise Keepers movement. Um, Not dodging the fight, as you you might say. And so she started keeping track of the letters that she got. And apparently she got a lot of letters after she wrote about the Promise Keepers movement. Um, If you don't know what that is, ask your dad. The uh, grandfather, okay. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, but she got his letters, and she had two stacks. She said she had one for hate mail, one for fan mail, and she said she got this one from Ken Smith. Guy I'm telling you about that didn't really fit either one. She said he didn't really agree with her, but it was uh, inquiring and kind. Uh, rather than incendiary, and so it didn't fit one of the stacks, so she just threw it away. <laughs> but she said she got to thinking about it later, and she got it out of the trash and read it, and uh, noticed that it included in it a dinner invitation, which was interesting to her, and she accepted. And she went to dinner with uh, Ken and Floyd Smith, and she wrote about it this way. She went, she said, basically thinking it, if nothing else, it would be good for her research. Yeah. Um, but she said, Ken didn't mock he engaged. And something else happened. Ken and Floyd and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked about sexuality and politics. And they didn't act as if such conversations were polluting them. When we ate together, Ken prayed. In a way I'd never heard before, his prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sins in front of me. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. <laughs> I'm against that last part. I like inviting people to church. <laughs> she wrote a book about their relationship and what God was doing in her life at that time called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. But what really shined in it to me was Ken and Boy Smith. Because yeah, they ended her life not condescendingly, not judgmentally, um, not standoffishly. You know, she, it, she noted that they didn't think they were being polluted by their conversations with her. Met her friends, they were curious, they listened, they read her books as well as handing her their books and repented in front of her. Because Apparently, Ken and Floyd Smith are the kind of people who believe that they're the sinners Jesus came into the world to save, that they're the broken people who have no hope outside of God's mercy. So they're the kind of people that Jesus sends into the world to tell his mercy to other people. Right? Let's pray. Father, I... Uh, Pray for myself and for my friends here. Uh, I assume everyone here is as self-justifying as I am, as defensive as I am, and as slow to believe the bad news about myself uh, as anybody else here. I pray that you'd let us uh, feel the beauty and depth of your grace for us and your Son, Jesus Christ, as we feel our brokenness, but see your mercy. And we would love, Father, for you to make this church a place of people like Ken and Floyd Smith where um, people realize our hope is in Jesus, not in ourselves. Uh, Please do that for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.